Welcome to the Retail Oasis Retail Wrap-Up. Before we jump into it, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which this was recorded, the Guy Margul people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge the elders past, present and future. In today's episode, we talked to Julian Farron-Price from J. Farron-Price Jewellery and Fine Watch Retailer. This is quite a different conversation as in this episode, we delve into the world of luxury goods. And we get a glimpse through Julian eyes as to how this part of the market is going. And it's going very, very well by the sounds of it. We talk about the importance of personalized service, the product as an experience, and the luxury consumers changing shopping behavior. For those of you that don't know Jay Farron Price, it was started in 1942 by Julian's father, who'd been trained by his brother as a watchmaker stocking their own watches, as well as a number of prestigious brands like Rolex and Tudor. They also, during the 1950s, expanded to have outlets in every Grace Brothers store and began franchising the brand across the country. In 1958, Mr. Farron Price employed Kristen Brown, an ambitious assistant, who who he ended up marrying and having their son Julian, who would later on buy him out of the business. This is a business that has seen more than its fair share of change. In the 1970s, there were 100 stores across Australia and New Zealand. This was at the time when the Japanese commercially developed the quartz watch. The novelty caused havoc in the Swiss mechanical watch industry. Many famous manufacturers became financially unstable, with some declaring bankruptcy and closing their doors. With this big change, the J. Farron Price wholesale network was closed. However, in 1976, a new opportunity presented itself. The business was offered a small salon for lease in the newly rebuilt St. James Centre in Castlereagh Street. Consequently, number 80 Castlereagh Street became the new home of J. Farron Price, where it remains today. What, rather than retiring, Mrs. Farron Price decided to pursue the business as a hobby. The newly established boutique began with stocking luxury watches and some jewellery pieces. In 1989, Julian joined the firm and has led it to where it is today, which is what we'll discuss today. We hope you enjoy this chat. Finally, before we get to it, if you missed it last week, we spoke to Sabrina from Clear For Me, a beauty ingredient platform which is currently working with Credo and Alter Beauty. This is a great conversation around the importance of transparency and responsibility. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Today's podcast, this is by way of an introduction, Julian Farron Price owner, operator of one of the most successful premium uh, jewellery and watch uh, retailers. And we thought hearing Julian's experiences with COVID would be a a more interesting and a different um, approach and therefore different outcomes. So um, thank you very much, Julian, for making the time this morning. Nice to be here. Thank you, Steve. So, mate, um, why don't we start by just asking you when when you started to hear about COVID and then the shutting down of retail, what was your initial thoughts or reactions to it? Uh, look, I think like everybody, um, it was quite a square, scary prospect uh, how long it would go for, what the restrictions would be. So, um, obviously, it was very worrying um, in, uh, in business uh, what the effect would be, what the, you know, how the business would survive through it. Uh, naturally, we were worried about the safety of our staff um, with COVID and, you know, it was a risk 
opening opening the store during uh, the the prime of the COVID period because uh, we didn't know who could come through the door. Uh, and we did uh, maintain uh, our operation throughout the COVID period. In the in the peak of it, in April, we, we opened two half days a week by appointment only just to service our customers. And like most businesses, we split into two teams so that if any one team was exposed, we still had another team that could operate. Um, Yes, it was a worry how long it would last for. We, we Going into it, nobody knew whether this would be for months, weeks or years. It also, a concern was the effect on our suppliers and their ability to produce, even if we could open in Australia, where it turned out we were relatively lucky. A lot of the countries uh, that supply us were severely affected, uh, particularly Switzerland and Italy. Mm. So there was a question mark on what the supply of our goods would be, even if... Um, even if we were open. So, yeah, there was a lot going through our head um, in the early days of COVID, I have to say. I find it interesting that you're opening two half days a week for appointment only. Is most of your business done appointment only and therefore it was easy to schedule it? Or is this a migration of consumer behaviour? Um, well, the reason we wanted to open is we had quite a few things on lay-by and hold for clients who uh, potentially wanted to pick them up. And we also wanted to keep the business rolling as best we could through um, through that uh, that period. So uh, we we geared up with our um, uh, with emailing our clients, telling them you know that we would be open two half days a week. You know, if they had the chance to make an appointment and come in and see us and do a transaction that was obviously very um, advantageous to us. So we just tried as best we could to keep the wheels of industry turning. Uh, and in answer to your question, yes, um, I think people got used to the idea that you needed to make uh, appointments to see uh, organisations because there was limit on the number of people you could have in the store at any one time. You needed to know who was coming to see you. So I think people were fairly understanding of that. And is that something that's continued? Um, look, uh, to a degree, um, we just had a very successful Rolex exhibition, which we um, insisted on appointments for people to, to see. In a period of uh, six days, we had 450 people visit us to see this Rolex exhibition, and that was only by appointment. We, had to, we were so busy, we had to turn people away from the store if they had not made an appointment. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I must say our clients, a big percentage of our clients do like to just turn up when it suits them and, and they still do. So we have a mixture now of uh, appointments and just uh, walk-ins. So the Rolex exhibition was something you'd already had planned earlier? Uh, no, this was um, put to us uh, very, very recently. Rolex uh, in... Um, Early September announced uh, a, a new launch of some models. They were held back from the usual Basel Fair in April, which didn't go ahead. And very quickly after that launch online, and I might say we were inundated with calls uh, for product from that day, uh, they said we would have uh, the opportunity to hold an exhibition of uh, 30 of the new models. Uh, so we had we put that together in about two weeks and we, we emailed our database and were uh, staggered by the response and in fact we had the busiest week probably in our history uh, between last Tuesday and, and the Sunday just gone. So you'd probably call this a Rolex-led recovery. <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, we 
We have uh, two wonderful brands. We've got a lot of brands, but two in particular, Rolex and Patek, which just, uh, they're the classics. They're the brands I think people gravitate to in moments of crisis. And uh, during this COVID, we've never seen uh, the demand that we have for these two brands. And supply? Well, supply um, is the big issue. Uh, but I, we have been a beneficiary of COVID, funnily enough, because, uh, you know, with Melbourne being locked down, the airports being shut, and maybe some other countries in the world not doing quite so well as Australia, it seems that we've got a bit better supply than we normally have. And as a result, we had an all-time record month in August for sales of Rolex. Wow. <laughs> that is extraordinary. Mm. That is extraordinary. So, so you'd kind of say that really the period has served you well from uh, well it, it's been far better than ex expected steve i can tell you that um essentially our numbers for the last uh, four months taking out april um are pretty much identical to last year now i don't know whether that's i'm, I'm very happy about that result but anecdotally i hear that uh, a lot of luxury retailers are exceeding their figures from last year so i don't know whether we've really done well or not but I'll, I'll certainly, I'll certainly take the result. <laughs> That's interesting. So, so you are suggesting that the upper end of the market, the prestige end of the market, has probably operated as BAU or BAU plus a little bit. Uh, maybe BAU plus a lot. I mean, anecdotally, I'm hearing from uh, car dealers that they've all been having record months. If you look at the second-hand prestige cars on the market, they're all drying up. Um, companies like uh, you know Louis Vuitton and uh, Hermes still seem to be charging along. So, yes, it's um, it's plus plus. So, is it possible that this is an outcome of people being restricted to travel and therefore ending up with more uh, available capital in their home market and they and therefore spending money in their home market? trying to get some enjoyment during these tough times? 110%. Um, you know, whereas uh, I'm, we're winning on two aspects. One is the budget people would spend to travel they now have for discretionary local consumption. And two is when they're travelling, they tend to purchase overseas. They feel in a good mood and, you know, they go into a, a store and they spend. Uh, so they're not doing either of those things. And then the third point, which you alluded to, there's a certain feel-good aspect to it, you know. When uh, when when things are uh, things are uh, you know challenging the way they are, it can be nice to buy a luxury good to, you know, just lift your spirits a bit. And I think there's certainly uh, an element of that going on. So you, that's quite a a new behaviour we're all adopting, isn't it? The kind of shift to online. Yeah. Look. Look. It's a, it's it's different for different businesses. Uh, the business I'm in, I believe, always has a future in a personal shopping. Um, it's an experience coming to buy uh, a luxury good, whether it's from Louis Vuitton or us, whether it's a Rolex, a piece of jewellery. You know, it's, it's, it's um, an, en an enjoyable event uh, to come into the store, get nice service, to feel the product, maybe to customise the product and, and, and in the case of jewellery, to design it to your specifications. And I think... In our field, there will always be the demand for face-to-face. -face. But, of course, we've seen in, in 
more um, consumer oriented products, the explosion in uh, online shopping, and I'm sure that's something that's not going to go away and, and probably increase. But I am hopeful that a traditional family business selling a product like ours will always have a, a demand for clients wanting to walk through the door. Yeah, interesting, um, very interesting way you're looking at your business because a lot of the retailers we've spoken to have all kind of understood that COVID is a bit of an accelerator. The things that they knew were going to change in their businesses, maybe in one year, two year, three or five, um, are all kind of happening at a much um, accelerated pace. So if they knew there was a shift in their business to online, if they knew there was a shift to their business in bigger, less stores, if they knew there was a shift to service enhancement, they feel that all those activities that they might have thought were going to happen over a, an extended period have just been forced upon them now. Whereas I think with you, that's less the case. Well, that, that, that's what I'm feeling, Steve. Um, uh, you know, I think as service becomes more and more impersonal and there's more of a shift to shopping online, I think, um, you know, as, uh, bricks and, some bricks and mortar stores, or depending on their product, will, you know, still experience good sales because having personal face-to-face -face service will become more of a rarity and will actually become more of an event. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sort of, yeah, that makes sense for me. I'm just keen to understand if I look at your business and what you're talking about is the, the personal selling is as much about the product as the product itself in that, you know, you kind of wrap it all up. And that is, you know, I've been in to have a look at the Rolex exhibition. Uh, I had a lovely afternoon. Uh, I looked at all these new watches. I thought about it. I went home, I thought about it, then made an appointment and came back and bought one of them. So I guess that is kind of, you know, the ultimate piece of personalised shopping and it adds so much more to the overall experience of having bought that Rolex. Well, there's, you know, also a lot of trust involved in our industry and, you know, we, we are all about building relationships with our clients. Um, you know, a lot of our clients have uh, gone on to be friends. They've, they've socialised together. It's, it's a little bit like being a member of a club, being a client of Jay Farron Price. And, um, you know, that's what we've tried to promote, that concept. And, uh, you know, so far it seems to work very, very well for us. So, and that's something that you've had in play for a while. I mean, if you like, let's call it the Jay Farron Price Club, family club, is something that's kind of been there in the business for always. Well, you know, that's what, that's what makes the business interesting to me, to be honest. I, I love, um, you know, meeting clients, uh, hearing what they do over the, the years and decades following their career path and see how they grow. Uh, then eventually uh, dealing with their children. We've got a lot of second generation coming through at the moment. The other thing we're getting a lot of at the moment is referrals. People are, are you know, happy with what we're doing and they're referring friends to us. And, uh, you know, you can't ask for better than that. But uh, my number one focus in our business is, is service. It's the only thing I care about. The only thing that matters to me is when the client walks in, they have a wonderful experience. I think that that's, that's so important because a lot of people just don't do it. They're, they're just interested in the quick sale, but, but we're interested in building long-term relationships. Right. Yeah. Uh, so really what you're saying is that for you, although um, COVID has placed a lot of pressure on the business 
from a safety point of view, a staff safety point of view, and a hygiene point of view, um, you felt that it's actually offered you the opportunity to strengthen those relationships. And I'm saying that because you only get referrals with really strong relationships. And you mentioned that you're getting increased referrals. Yeah, look, um, honestly speaking, this is not something new for us, Steve. It's, it's something we've always done. My mother instilled this into us. You know, I keep talking to my staff about perfection. That's what, that's what we want to deliver. Um, you know, I always remember Marco Pierre White on MasterChef, always talking about perfection, perfection, perfection. And that's, uh, you know, something we've always worked on. That's not changed for us since COVID. That's, it's just a situation normal. Yeah, yeah. One question um, we've spoken a bit about on the podcast with other retailers is Cyber Week and Christmas. Um, obviously, no one knows the future, but how do you see it playing out leading up from here? October, November, December. How do you see that operating in your business in the prestige market? As I said, that, that I think like COVID, it's it's very uh, dependent on what business you're in. I don't see that Cyber Week affecting us one way or the other, but I, for sure, I can imagine in um, in a lot of stores that focus on uh, online, that will be a, a, a big week for them, and uh, much like the Black Monday is. Um, but um, it, it could be a very, very busy Christmas. Uh, again, coming back to the point that people can't travel, they're going to be around, they'll be here with their families. Um, and, you know, they seem to be in the mood to spend. And uh, I think that uh, we could have a pretty solid uh, build up to Christmas. And right now I'm, I'm, I'm planning on buying a lot of inventory to be prepared for it. Right. So you're, you're expecting pretty good Christmas trade. Well, that's what I'm hoping, uh, Steve. <laughs> Another question, if I may. This isn't the first crisis that J. Farron Price Business has been through. Talk to us about the devastating effect uh, the invention of the court's court watch had been on the business in the 70s. Yeah, look, it, that requires a little um, recap from me on, on the history of, of the company for those people who don't know, which will be probably most people under 60. But my <laughs> father was the king of the was the king of the watch business in the uh, 40s, 50s and 60s in Australia. And at one stage, we had over 100 stores throughout Australia. We're in every Grace Brothers store in Australia. We're in New Zealand. And we sold, um, we had a lot of different watch agencies, uh, including uh, Rolex and Tudor and Longines back then. So a very, very big organisation. And most people of that time, their first watch would have been a J. Farron Price watch. So there's great history there. The maid, his name was made with Bob Dyer on picker box, mm -hmm. and also John Laws was very um, uh, formative uh, for us. And we were always on 2UE, and it was J. Farron Price time. Looking very nice in the 50s, and then, as you say, this quartz crisis came and decimated not just us, but the, uh, the whole Swiss industry. And, in fact, there was a company developed called SMH, which was uh, put together by the banks in Switzerland to um, plonk all of uh, the, uh, the practically bankrupt watchmakers in, such as uh, Amiga and Longines. And that, that SMH has now become the Swatch Group, which is one of the biggest groups in, uh, in watches in the world. So we shut down that very large organisation in the 70s as a result of, um, uh, of the Japanese uh, watch being developed. It was a great... Um, a great new piece of technology. Uh, you know, incredibly, there was the uh, 
LED watches, so, uh, no, LCD watches where you had to push the button to see the time and they looked a bit like a brick on your wrist. And then they refined it a bit and, and uh, there was the ones that uh, you could always read the time on. And then, of course, it went on to have all these incredible functions that electronic watches now have, now have like the, the Swatch watch and um, not the Swatch watch, the uh, Apple watch. And, uh, you know, it's quite incredible what's happened. But uh, so we, we shut down that organisation and we had the opportunity to open a little store where we currently are. And my mum did it a hobby, as a hobby in 1975. And we went to the more prestige end of the market. And it's interesting, firms like Patek Philippe, when the, the quartz crisis came, they had a, a vision further ahead and, you know, they always believed in the future of the mechanical watch and they, they kept on producing the mechanical watch. Uh, they developed it. Uh, and in 1989, Patek Philippe had the first auction in the world for one brand of watch and it was to celebrate their 150th anniversary. And it, the results were phenomenal and it was a turning point for Patek Philippe, actually. When people saw the auction results that this brand received, um, it, it really uh, got people very enthusiastic about the brand. Next, we, uh, we went to the upper end instead of uh, trying to compete in the, the Japanese end of the market. Uh, we kept a prestige. We went to one store instead of having 100. And so there always will be a market, I believe, um, for, for things of lasting value, especially as everything gets more disposable. So, yes, that was a crisis we faced in... Uh, in uh, in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, but uh, fortunately we're still here. So, so the lesson out of that is consolidate the business, which is what you did, and identify where there is uh, a more sustainable long-term market, which for you was more upmarket, but finding a more sustainable market, but really consolidating the business and, and really putting personal skills, personal selling skills, and uh, in in play, yeah. Look, that was uh, you know that was one of those key moments in life where we had to reinvent our business, and these things can be forced upon you. Most recently, technology can really force you to reinvent your business with people going to online sales um, where they've needed to uh, bricks and mortar. So that yeah, that was a pivotal moment for us. Yeah, it's good advice. Finally. Any advice for businesses, for retailers at the moment, now re-gearing or organising themselves that you could share from your experiences or advice you might think that's worth considering um, out of this session? Yeah, look, um, I've always been very, very conservative. Um, you know, we, we were talking about hard times before and uh, you know, I remember when I joined our business in 1989 um, but my mother was a million and a half dollars in debt with 13% interest. And, um, you know, she had a, a pile two inches thick of checks uh, to creditors. And as the money would come in the front door, a check would go out the back. So I've, I've lived through some pretty hard times and I never, never wanted to experience that again. So I guess the thing that I've always focused on is making sure the business is bulletproof. Uh, so we have um, worked towards that to have um, resources up our sleeve in case something like COVID happens. And, it, you know, it could, could have turned out differently to the way it did. Uh, we, were, we were fortunate that the prestige held up, but, you know, but we might have been affected by a lot of others or we could have had the situation in Melbourne where we shut down completely. 
And so I've always been like a squirrel storing the nuts away for winter. It surprises me how few businesses actually have that sort of mentality and how a crisis like this, you know, a, a, a six or 12 months crisis can actually just wipe them off the map. And that's what I've always um, wanted to make sure that I, I could survive something like this. Very few, very few businesses, Julian, have been around as successful as you have for the period you've been around. And very few businesses, management, senior management, would have seen the downturn in the late 80s and early 90s and had to make those adjustments. So you're in a fortunate position of having been there, done that, and now thinking about how to make something sustainable and with that sustainability comes um, length of length of operation. Yeah, so yeah, that has been uh, an advantage that we've had, you know, 20 years of sunshine since the Olympics and no recessions and what have you. And as you point out, a lot of people won't have been through it and seen how hard it can be. But the other thing, you know, um, we've been very diligent, but we've also been very cautious. And um, I've... Um, you know, I started to let the purse strings go a little bit in my in my later life, but up until now, I've been um, very careful with my spending. It does surprise me how much pressure people put on themselves by wanting things and 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 buying luxury things that they really can't afford or they're financing. So, you know, my other bit of I suppose advice is you know to to, to live according to the you know your income and not beyond it. Right. Well, thanks so much, mate. It's been um, a great session. Really good to hear your point of view and great for you to make the time to impart some wisdom. Oh, it's been lovely talking to you, Steve. I appreciate uh, um, our chat and also, you know, your, your, your friendship over the years. We hope you enjoyed that conversation. We'd love for you to rate and review the podcast if you have time, plus subscribe and you'll be automatically notified for the next episode. If you want to learn more about Retail Oasis, head to retailoasis.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and we will see you next week.